Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by Peter, Nicholas, Hannah and Alex to discuss the topic of machine learning, how to get started. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Peter, do you want to start things off? It is, of course. Uh, I'm, yeah, my name is Peter, of course, and I work in Novo Nordisk as a lead data scientist, where I work in a, in a, yeah, in what we call the AI and analytics and of excellence, where we help different parts of the organization to uh, start up projects related to machine learning and data science. Perfect. Niklas? Yeah, hi everyone. I am Niklas Veldorf and I am leading the Danish data and analytics practice at the IBM Client Innovation Center. In the team, we develop and implement data-driven advanced analytics and machine learning solutions in productions for clients. We serve, serve both Nordic clients, but uh, I'm proud that we have a, a Danish hub of highly skilled uh, team members that also act as uh, leads and uh, subject matter experts on uh, global projects as well. I'm happy to be here and discuss the topic. Great. And Hannah? Yeah. So my name is Hannah Svey. And uh, just as of past month, I'm heading up Vesta's new AI Center of Enablement. So quite similar to you, Peter. Um, I joined Vesta's in December. And before that, I've spent nine years as a consultant working initially as a statistical programmer and then transitioning gradually into the applied ML space where I've spent the past five, six years managing data science uh, projects and teams. Great. And finally, Alex. Yeah, sure. So my name is Alex Junge. Um, I'm head of machine learning at Cordy. Cordy is a, a scale-up company building SaaS products to support patient encounters in, in healthcare. So what we do from a machine learning perspective is using voice-based technologies, uh, but also NLP to, you know, help the healthcare professional in their interaction with the patient. So that's uh, listening into a conversation, doing transcription, guiding the professional in the conversation in the right way, but then also again, helping with administ administration, such as coding the encounter in, in the right way. Um, we're a scale-up company because we're scaling in terms of the number of people we have, but also the, the product offering and the number of customers we have internationally. We're headquartered in Copenhagen, but, you know, distributed around the globe, really. Um, on a personal note, I'm from Germany originally, have been living in Denmark for about 10 years now. And um, yeah, I'm a happy shotter of a, an almost three-year-old now. <laughs> so, hello, everyone. Perfect. Great. Welcome, everyone. And thank you all so much for joining me today. Um, so now that we have established a bit of a context to each of you, let's move on to our topic in focus. So you all have questions or statements on machine learning, how to get started. As usual, I'll work around the room with each of these questions and allow you to elaborate. And then each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So first of all, Peter, you'd like to discuss how we interact with the line of business to start up new ML projects. 
with the right commitment from both sides to make it work. Do you want to elaborate a little for us? Yes, I can do that. And it's a it's an interesting question, right? Because how do we actually start machine learning projects? And um, and also, how do we get the commitment from the line of business? And you can say I'm sitting like in a central unit uh, in the in the AI and analytics center of excellence, so we actually get a lot of use cases in from uh, across the organization, like that people are sitting on a production line and have some good ideas of how to use uh, machine learning to solve like a specific problem. And of course, the, um, we have this funnel that we have created kind of to sort through the ideas and kind of try out the most essential ones. And of course, the first thing is always, you know, the business value. I mean, people have to somehow argue that this is not just cool, but it has a business value, at least a potential business value down the line. Uh, and of course, they also have to have people that are actually interested in it and not just, you know, um, uh, just an, a normal person sitting working with it, but it should be someone from, from management or something like that, that, that actually has a willingness to get into this. Okay. So then what we actually do is that we have, a, if we have a good idea from somewhere, uh, and there seems to be some interest uh, and some people that can pick it up, then uh, we often start, uh, instead of going full scale in uh, without even knowing the data and everything, then we start out with what we call a hackathon or a data to wisdom sprint. But we have a, we set aside a two week uh, period of time. And of course, um, they have to come with the commitment that you have to provide, you know, someone who knows that data. Um, and uh, of course, also that domain. So if you're working with a finance project, you need to really provide people that are allocated for those two weeks, uh, both from the data side, but also from the domain side, where we have, you know, uh, daily uh, standups. And of course, we also do like a, a contract, you could say, like, so the, uh, so they have to provide us as well with the data before the hackathon actually starts uh, that, that we think is needed for this. So, okay, so then we start, we do two weeks. We try, uh, we don't, we don't, we're not concerned about the quality of the code or anything like that. We just look at the data for two weeks. We have these daily meetings so make, to make sure that whatever we do is aligned with both the, the domain experts and, and, and what they're thinking. And then in the end of these two weeks, we have a really, really good idea, you know, of the three main elements that is normally required to do a successful data science project. Uh, first of all, I mean, uh, does the right technology actually exist out there to solve the problem? And also, do they have the right data to solve the problem? And also, do they have the right people to solve the problem, right? Because, of course, we can solve it from a data science point of view, but maybe they want an integration into an existing system. And do you actually have the right people to provide that knowledge or should we find that somewhere else? So after this hackathon, like two weeks, we sit down with them and we discuss, you know, okay, how did it go? Maybe we have some comments like, oh, if we had to do something in this domain, you need to improve your data. And maybe the technology is not mature yet. But if you actually decide to go on, then we continue uh, building an MVP uh, where we um, where we take a little bit longer time, maybe eight weeks, where we try to build everything, you know, in a more structured way on actual Novo Nordisk infrastructure and everything. We do a, a new presentation and then afterwards we decide, okay, now we actually have an MVP. Should we scale and should we start thinking about envelopes and all these things? So this is kind of a funnel, you know, when it gets, you know, smaller and smaller. Uh, the, the amount of uh, of projects, but also making sure that the projects we actually commit to, um, that those are the, actually the ones that are both possible and has and has value. So uh, we only spend the minimum time of the of the things that turns out not to really be possible. So that is kind of the way that we in, engage with business and and do data science. Okay, and Alex, what about you from your end? What do you kind of do there? Yeah, I mean, um, as I mentioned during the introduction, um, so for us, we are we're a SaaS company 
so software as a service um, and machine learning in many ways is part of our core product right so um for us the question is not so much if we want to use machine learning and who you know who's the you know the line of business <laughs> that we could work with but it's more about what advances in machine learning can we bring into our product to deliver value for our customers so the customers are not internal for us but external uh customers we you know we, we we're trying to you know in the end present our software to and what want them to use it so our software exists in the external marketplace i would say so it's a it's it's a marketplace of products uh and we just need to convince our, our customers that whatever we're building largely relying on machine learning is is the best solution out there um so i think what is especially interesting when regarding the discussion here because feature you focus a lot on like the funnel of starting very early on when you don't even have something in 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 the marketplace when you just have a new idea and what we often do is um we we start a proof of value or also build an mvp together with with an early customer that is willing to to co-develop a a product or a solution together with us and that can come in many ways it can be that uh you know we sign a data sharing agreement and have all the necessary uh you know hurdles sort of removed because there's health we're working with healthcare data so that's really important but once we have the data on our side we we play around with it we talk with the domain experts again the end user and try to develop a, a prototype an mvp just showing that we can actually do something that is of value to the user using machine learning or really whatever <laughs> whatever technology that that sort of serves the job so it's very much also for us kind of a co-development main difference is that it's again external customers and not an internal uh, marketplace we're serving yeah great and hannah what about you as well from a consultant point of view i suppose yeah i think you know it's interesting uh, alex you're the you're the outlier here because uh, the three of us we all have this sort of you know we need to take everything through this funnel right and I think, but what's key in what, what you're both saying is really that uh, you need to uh, anchor sort of the ownership of um, uh, of of the solution in the business, right? So you really need to bridge that gap between the uh, technology and the business need. Um, and I think you asked about commitment, Peter. And I think uh, to me, I would say if you talk about not how to interact, but the commitment part, I would answer ideally financial commitment, right? Um, and if you can't that have that because people don't buy into it and sometimes our role is to actually make people see the light, um, then as minimum as project contributors, right? That are heavily involved in sort of defining the target output of an ML model and designing the success metrics upfront, because I mean, in the end, it is the business users that define whether this model will be good enough, right? And also, how is it in reality that we want to interact with the model output, right? So I think, um, and that also sort of reduces later on the whole debate about change management, right? Because if you've had them with you from start, uh, then that might not even be really um a big uh, problem yeah yeah good points and then nicholas what about you yeah peter i believe uh, your question ties in perfectly uh, with the overall title of this podcast sessions uh, machine learning how to get started and i would tend to answer by not starting with machine learning of course there are there are aspects about the machine learning that's crucial to have in mind from the beginning and i think we'll likely discuss those 
during the sessions. And uh, Alex, as you said, getting most out of machine learning, yes. There are also perspectives that understanding what kinds of problems that machine learning can solve is also highly important. But I would also say that it's essential in the beginning to first understand what's the problem in detail before settling on a, on a methodology that machine learning is. But Peter, your question is also about how to interact then with the business uh, when starting up new machine learning projects. And if we isolate just the project part of that, in general, I find that design thinking with its diverse set of collaborative workshop formats, it's quite a good um, approach for that. But there are many skilled people uh, that are expert in that, uh, experienced designers as an example. So what is particularly special about machine learning then and how we interact around machine learning projects in the startup phase? And from my perspective, one of the important aspects is to align on the experimental nature of machine learning projects. Instead of, and Peter, you were also in on this topic, so instead of just kicking off with just one initial workshop to align on the, on a scope and then say goodbye and good luck, uh, I find it quite important to use these initial workshops to, to align on an intent, define some hypotheses, and then exactly as you say, move into an experimental development phase where you test out these hypotheses, closely interact with the business to tell them about the outcome, the learnings, and use that as you move closer towards defining the MVP. Awesome, really good advice from all of you there. And um, so I will move us on. This will, this will lead us nicely into your topic, I suppose, Nicholas. There can be a little bit of linking with this. So, which is to discuss how to ensure that these ML models have a profound impact continuously, so sustained over time. So, what what's your thoughts on this, Nicholas? Yeah, and this this question is intentionally very open-ended, uh, and, and there are many aspects to it. Uh, there's ter- certainly a technical uh, perspective to it, for instance, on how to operate machine learning models, as has already been mentioned in terms of MLOps. But I'm, I'm simply just curious to hear what are the perspectives that you would highlight. Yeah, so who wants to kick us off here? Uh, Alex? Oh, Hannah, yep. do you want to go ahead? Can I just start with a follow-up question? I mean, just from your experience, oh, once, yeah. what... What is it that, that you've been struggling with most in this in this context, just to understand sort of where you're coming from with this? What 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 has frustrated you the most? Where where did things fail to create a profound impact? At least what I see is important. I mean, there, there's a classical saying on uh, think big, start small. But then I tend to add, but but don't forget the big, and don't forget the big already from from the start. So so that's one of the the key things that 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 I am aware of that even though, of course, you have to start with, with, with small steps and small implementation, and this is, all, this is what this podcast is about, how to get started. But there are certain aspects that you know about machine learning that will come up mm. uh, in long term. And those aspects, I believe, you need to think about already from the start. Mm, yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, just to continue with that, um, I think what one of the things we do and quite try to do quite early on is, for example, getting some kind of idea of a customer satisfaction score, right? There's different approaches of how to measure that. Um, this can be scaled down and scaled up in many different ways, but getting user feedback early on is super critical because it is it tells you, are you on the right track with this? Um, do people like your product compared to everything else they could be doing from buying another software to just sticking with the old, I don't know, manual workflow you're trying to automate here? 
So getting the user in, talking to the user, uh, to the end user often, so not not to the economic buyer necessarily, but also talking to the, the person that actually uses your stuff and doing that early on and also making sure that you're willing to, you know, that it still remains a co-development beyond the MVP stage. I think that's it's really important and it's really, um, you know, use necessary from in my point of view to create also a lasting impact and having a good relationship and improving these things over time. And then you can talk about retraining and MLOps and all these kind of things, having that in the back of your head. Karen, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, sure. I think um, uh, I think it's it's a very important question to ask. And I think it's it's a, a little bit easier for you, Alexander, because you're working on 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 sort of the same problem or or sort of over time. Whereas in this consultancy world, you meet a lot of sort of, uh, you're representing sometimes uh, technology looking for a problem, right? Which is actually a little bit the wrong way around. Um, so I think that you really, in the startup phase, you really need to make sure that you're actually solving a real problem and the right problem. And you're not just playing around with technology. Um, and I think um, the the thing you're saying about user feedback, right? Um, your hackathon, Peter, that allows you to actually get some something tangible to talk about very fast. So you can get some feedback. You can sort of say, so this is how far we can get. What's the feedback on that? And then you can actually assess, does, do we actually solve the problem that we set out to solve, right? And also moving towards an MVP, very fast prototyping. Are we solving this problem? Would you be able to use this, right? And then I think also, you know, after launch, sort of plan for failure, right? Make sure that you have a strategy to test whether it continues to solve your business problem uh, in terms of monitoring, in terms of supporting users, in terms of debugging, and also in in terms of adapting to a changing world, uh, right? Um, and maybe also have a system for killing solutions that are no longer important. Because if you have a system for killing stuff, then you know if it shouldn't be killed. You have a way of looking at that, right? So, Peter, did you have them? Yeah, many of the things have been mentioned, right? Uh, of course, before you start the project, of course, you have to do an assessment also. I mean, uh, what kind of data is involved? It's a very confidential data. It's not so confidential data, and so on. Because that will, of course, uh, also determine how how early you can put something in the hands of the of the you can say customer or the stakeholder. Um, but yeah, I believe in I guess as early as possible, make a quick prototype, give it in the hands of the actual users, and it doesn't matter if it doesn't look good the first time. You just select, you know, of course, a limited amount of users. And and then you can try to see if you can actually help them do things in their in their work like faster or better or something like that. And of course, also, I mean, um, um, over time, I mean, when when you kind of develop these solutions, you have to think about uh, ML hubs, for example, and also you know, all the time extracting the metrics about how much are these models being used uh, and so on. Are people starting to use it more? Are they starting to use it less? But then you can reach out and find out what are the reasons to do retraining or, or something else. And, uh, and our approach to MLOps here is that we actually have a team that is more dedicated in the MLOps that kind of creates the tools that we data scientists can kind of uh, plug into. And um, like both for monitoring and uh, and, and, and how many like, pipelines for, for different use cases. Because um, my experience is also that Data scientists have over time become like a jack of all trades. 
And uh, you're like, okay, we are supposed to make models, we are supposed to make apps, we are supposed to make ML ops and everything. And for example, ML ops is not a, like necessarily a new thing, right? In software development, you have had ML ops like solutions for many years. Um, so we, we have a, a team, but of course we have some data scientists, but also a lot of more dedicated software engineers to kind of create tools uh, in an area where they maybe are more specialized. But of course, uh, as I said, data science is very broad nowadays. So of course, there are also data scientists that specializes in different areas, like uh, all the way from ML ops engineers, right, to applied data science to, yeah, whatever you can think of. It's, it's so broad nowadays that we maybe should think about splitting the field up at some point. <laughs> Does everyone agree with that? <laughs> I think it's an well, interesting motion to split up the field. Oh. Sorry, sorry. I'll, I'll, what you... <laughs> maybe this is going to work, but have you got any thoughts to, you know, how we would clean this up? I, I, agree, I agree. It's a it's a mess. It's super difficult. And it's even, you know, yeah. maybe it's just a state of things of being early in MLOps. I don't even know what it means. I think, I mean, I have my notion. I guess you have yours, you know, <laughs> but what's the best step to clean this up a little bit in your view? Um, yeah. In, uh, in my view, I mean, uh, of course, we have to think about, I mean, okay, data science in the back in the days was that you have some people sitting in a basement, basically, and just trying to hack together solutions, right? Nowadays, we actually have many of these solutions out there for many of the of the use cases, right? So there, there are definitely a data science task in, in taking existing solutions that are modified a little bit to what's the business need, and then having these interactions with the business stakeholders to kind of make sure that tools are being implemented in the right way. There's, a, there's the whole education teaching part about data science. Should that be a data scientist? Should it be somewhere, someone else, someone in between that, that does kind of all these workshops and things? There's also, of course, the, the data scientists, you know, in research, for example, we have plenty of data scientists that build their own models for, for a specific problem. That's a completely different set of skills you need for that, right? And then there's the MLOps field, uh, which is a whole different set of skills you need for that. And then it's like, okay, how how much focus should you have a model part? How much focus should be on actually creating applications? Because we often actually have the issue that that uh, many of our data scientists are using most of that time developing applications, right? Um, and that's that's fine, of course. But also we need to to some point define what is a data scientist actually nowadays? What kind of different data scientists are there? And what kind of career advice uh, should there be for the different kind of data scientists out there? Because it's very often being treated as just one common thing. That's, that's my opinion. I think it's a really interesting discussion because, I mean, the topic is like how to get started, get started using ML, right? And, you know, <laughs> fundamental to that is having actually the right team and the right composition of the team, etc. So, yeah, might be worth following up on later. <laughs> yes, and if I can add to that, it's actually interesting because I have previously been advising customers who wanted to get started sort of working with machine learning. And one of the main advices I gave to them was don't start by hiring a data scientist because, uh, you know, you need to start with the whole engagement part, right? And and that is a different task that the average data scientist uh, does not thrive in, basically. Um, so what do you think about that, Nicholas? Would you agree? I don't know about that. If the average data scientist <laughs> wouldn't thrive in that, um... <laughs> it's slightly very individually, but but of course you're right. There are many, like with all projects that starts up, it's it's a broad list of different skill sets that are needed to to do that. And the data scientists, I would say, have their roles in in that, bringing in some context into the discussion, uh, understanding the perspective on methodologies, the possibilities, uh, and then 
various other skill sets are of course also needed. Yep, that's. Um, so next up, we'll come to you, Hannah. Um, so you've asked, what do you see as the main barriers to securing the scalability of ML-based value capture across an organization and what are ways of dealing with them? Do you want to explain a little bit more for us on that? Yeah, so my thinking is just if you look at how sort of transformative the technology actually is and that has been long before sort of the chat GPT hype, I find it surprising how few companies that I know of that actually manage to leverage it efficiently across all the many processes and products, services, uh, where it could actually make a very significant business impact. Um, and why why is that the case? And how do you move up the maturity ladder? Okay. Nicholas, do you want to go ahead with your opinions first? Sure. So I think it relates quite a lot to what I also mentioned a bit earlier in terms of uh, thinking big, starting small, but don't forgetting the the big. In in, in terms of key barriers for for that, I would mention uh, the lack of an implemented AI strategy. Uh, while data strategies they are quite common, fairly effective in organizations with successful implementations of, for instance, data warehouses, data governance, etc. But an AI strategy that outlines aspects such as MLOps infrastructure, governance, uh, all of those things, I think is essential to ensure uh, scalability across organizations. As an example, when, when an organization starts up with machine learning, the first team has built a great machine learning model. Then, as several of you have, have mentioned, then they discover MLOps, spend quite a considerable effort on, 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 gov- on, on that part, the governing infrastructure surrounding their models. But then again, uh, machine learning is just a method. In large organizations, there are many teams that may start to apply this method. So what when the next team creates an ML, op, uh, ML model, then they discover MLOps and they have to set that up. Did they then reuse what the first team already set up? If not, why not? Was there a reason or were they just not aware that someone else had, has already uh, done it? Uh, so this aspect of having an AI strategy, I think is, uh, is, is quite crucial. Having all these things defined in a central uh, place. Yeah, great. Alex? Yeah, I mean, who do you think should set such an AI strategy, right? Because I mean, for a data strategy, I guess, you know, it, it just, to me, the further you move up the stack of actually making use of data using machine learning, it gets more complicated, right? And you need to bring in experts that don't understand the domain, but also understand sort of what's technically possible. And, you know, where, where do you see this this successful AI strategy, I guess, especially in a larger organization? Where do you where do you see that usually anchored? I think that AI is becoming such an essential part of most organizations that a strategy around that, I mean, much of AI is used not just for uh, improving efficiency at, at various parts of, of the business, but also for making insights that directly steers the direction of the business. So AI lives at the very top of a business and also at the at the highest level of, of strategy. At least it should, yeah. I agree. <laughs> and Peter, what about you? I like um, what you said about, you know, um, about strategy and also, you know, making sure that things are aligned, you know, so each group is not 
within the plate, uh, within the wheel, uh, like because. And one way we work with this is that we we like this marketplace approach, both when it comes to data, but also when it comes to machine learning models and and even uh, uh, code as well, right? Where, of course, I mean, uh, you might have some data you cannot just give access to everyone, but uh, very often you can at least give access to some metadata about your data. And the same with the models, right? Maybe you cannot give everyone your model, but you can at least give a description of what your model does. And then you can have a, a central place where, where you can search and say like, okay, has anyone done uh, forecasting on, on finance, right? And then you come up with, uh, of course, with the, if you search for the models, it comes up with the models that have actually been developed with, the, of course, the initials for the people you can contact. Uh, and if it's data, you come up with the data sets that might be relevant for that, uh, that kind of use case. Um, so uh, this is a way kind of democratizing both data and models, you know, to make sure that we, we, we don't redo work that's already been done, but of course, also part of it is to make, um, yeah, the different ways of doing it, right? Because it's a balance, right? Because we also have some an MLOps team, you know, that kind of make uh, official kind of guidelines, how you should do MLOps software and so on. But also, you know, data scientists don't like to be limited too much, you know, so it should be some kind of plug and play tools like, uh, like Lego, basically, right? Like people can can take these pieces and put them together in the way that you would like them to be, right? Um, so, uh, but of course, it's a it's a big uh, it's a big discussion. I mean, how flexible, like uh, how much freedom should people have, and how much uh, strategy, like guidelines, should people have? Um, so, we, I think most companies are still trying to figure out exactly what the balance should be there. So, what do you think, Hannah? Of everyone's thoughts? I think it's a really good input. I think it's interesting when you when you refer to it as a, a strategy, I would say it's maybe uh, also organizational uh, to a big extent, right? And if you look at Peter and I, now we both represent this sort of centralized unit who are actually there to sort of tie things together across the organization and then sort of consolidate the the, the tasks you meet when you try to solve problems with machine learning that generalize that you need to do over and over again and then sort of uh, build small Lego pieces that uh, actually reduce time to delivery for those people, right? And sort of uh, distill the best practices. So I think to me, it's actually also really um, an, an organizational question, right? Um, but I think all the input you have is it's very, yeah, it's very, very important. Uh, for the scalability, right? How do you reuse? Yeah. Any other final thoughts on that topic then? Before we move on to our final question? Nope. Great. So finally then, Alex, over to you. So you want to talk about the risks of machine learning products or projects, sorry, and how to de-risk them. Do you want to go ahead? You're on mute at the moment. <laughs> I knew it's go. What's going to happen? If it's... <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it ties into very nicely into Anna's question as well. You know, why, why is it that not more organizations are adopting machine learning successfully. And I think in my view, it's because it comes with a lot of risks or things that are just make it difficult. And if you look at, you know, I think about product development and ML in relation to developing products and things like that. And, you know, the classical products, they come with a risk of offer value, you know, do people want to buy it or use your solution against something else? They come with a usability. Can people figure it out? They come with a, a, a business viability risk. So can you actually build this as the organization building the product? And then lastly, there's, of course, in all products that are software-based, there's the technical risk of feasibility, right? Can you do this in the first place? And then if then the ML component comes in, it, it 
kind of exacerbates a lot of these risks, especially the feasibility risk around suddenly you bring in the component of data. Do you even have the data you want? Have? You, you need to, you know, make this work. Can you train a model that actually, ex you know, achieves the performance you need to, <laughs> you need um, all the MLOps questions, right? So the technical dimension is just way much bigger in ML heavy project than on top of that, there's often, often, you know, an increasingly and a societal, I guess, discussion around, you know, do we want to do this in the first place, right? Should we, should we attempt to 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 build a model that automates X, given that X might, I don't know, bias against certain minorities in the population or may might take certain persons' jobs away? And right, what are the implications of that? So it, there's a lot of risks um, that are brought in by this additional ML component. So I don't know. I mean, my question is very open. Do you how do you think about these risks? Um, do you have any frameworks to address them? Do you discuss them openly? How do you de-risk ideally, et cetera? Anna, do you want to go ahead first off? <laughs> yeah, I think this is an extremely good and also a difficult, you know, it's a painful question, basically. I, I share the analysis that you do indeed have a higher risk level. And I think also, you know, that is partially the answer to my previous question, right? Um, to me, there are sort of a few key ingredients to de-risking. And I think the first one is to ensure that you have a competence mix on your team that are able to recognize the different types of risks, right? Because if you have a software en engineer, on average, that person might not recognize the risks in the data and the statistical risks, right? And whereas if you have a very sort of, um, you know, if you have a data scientist that comes from the statistical background, they might might underestimate sort of the risks in in the software engineering space, right? Um, and uh, and similarly, do you have um, people on that team that can recognize sort of the aspects you're mentioning about business viability, uh, right? And then I think um, you know we've already talked about it, but working incrementally and sort of agile and then having sort of risk assessment as an integral part of your sort of sprints and gates where you revisit, you know, uh, with the new information we have, does the risk picture still favor moving ahead, right? Um, so I guess, you know, fast, we've heard it so many times, but it, it is probably because it's, it's, it's a good saying, right? And then back to um, planning for failure again, I said it before, right? But to keep assessing those risks um, and reassessing them. Um, and I think that the regulatory space, I mean, that that is moving a lot right now and it's becoming uh, also more relevant because we just we're just seeing something that we haven't seen before right and and um, and it becomes really important to engage in and think about not only can we do it but should we do it um, yeah peter what are your thoughts i think we definitely need to have uh, i mean there's an educational aspect to this as well right for example let's say just chat gpt right it came out the whole world was amazed then uh, all kind of people all over the world started using it for work purposes, right? And then there have been some data leakages and things like that. And of course, I mean, uh, that, that was maybe one of the examples where we should maybe have slowed a little bit down before we actually started using it. And I can say that, I mean, can we actually use it in a safe and secure way without risk of data leakage and, and all that? And I think it's uh, it's important also that in a company, right, you have some kind of ethical framework. I mean, we had an ethical researcher that tried to work for a few months while making some some ethical guidelines about this. 
and even an essential unit by because there are, for example, ways also of checking if models have bias uh, in different ways, right? And and that can be like a, and maybe not for all projects, but for some projects, you, you might have to have you know an ethical appro- uh, or approval before you can you can actually release it, right? Because there are many questions uh, also just when it comes to uh, to personal data, right? If you train a, a big model on a personal data, right? And, and I mean, personal data, you often have to write as a person to uh, to get the company to remove all your data. But if your data is part of a model, you then have the right to, to actually remove a model because you it was somehow trained uh, on uh, on your personal data, right? So those are also questions we need to uh, consider. Right? Yeah, Nicholas, what do you think? I think that, that the one risk about machine learning project is, is to think about these risks in the same way as you would do with, with classical IT project risks. I, I love, Hannah, how you how you said that this was a painful question because th- that's exactly how, how we tend to, to think that these risks are problems to solve uh, something bad. And of course, don't get me wrong, risk management is crucial for machine learning projects and we need to be extremely cautious about many of the aspects that you have already mentioned, such as bias in models, ethical standards, regulatory future requirements, all of these things. But I just want to highlight the perspective that machine learning projects are driven by experiments and hypotheses. So some aspects like data availability, model accuracy, etc., might also be an opportunity for new innovations. I think that's just an important mindset to have for, for instance, machine learning project managers when they think of a risk such as an underperforming machine learning model. If you think avoid or remove or something bad, your data scientists who worked on this model might internalize that risk. Did I not build a good enough model? But instead, I think it's useful to keep the experimental nature of machine learning projects in mind. Test early, discuss accuracy early, compare and qualify the accuracy, be 100% transparent. So I believe that transparency is the most important way to to de-risk machine learning projects. But if being transparent is too vague of an answer, one exercise that we use as part of design thinking is the assumption and questions exercise, which I think is quite good for for detecting these risks early. And and they're great material for for that exercise online. Would you agree with all of that, Alex? Yeah, some very good pointers. Um, What I picked on most actually was the, the the first point I think that Hannah raised was was the diversity thing because you know I'm and I think maybe some of us are also hiring people and hiring machine learning engineers or data scientists and I just think that yeah it's a huge problem also right because it's such a you know the pool of data scientists and machine learning engineers it's very I guess you know male biased so there's a lot of males uh, very few females in technical fields um, but also all of along many eth- ethnical dimensions, right? I, I wouldn't say there's a very diverse talent tool actually working on this right now. So it it really comes down to like a core of, you know, how do we educate people in data science? How do we bring in more and diverse perspectives? And it's it's really, really crucial to, you know, to even identify a lot of risks in, <laughs> in the first place and not, not swap, swap, uh, you know, swap them under the rug, I guess, or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, very good, very good points. Um, something to read up on as well, based on, on Nicholas's answer. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, I hope everyone's learned something from today. So before we finish off, though, does anyone have any other final questions or thoughts for the podcast? All good. Okay, so we'll leave it there for today. And I just want to thank you all again. 
each of you, Alex, Hannah, Nicholas, and Peter, for some really great insights into our topic today. And like I said, hopefully everyone's learned something from it, um, including our listeners as well. So thank you everyone for listening in. And if you do want to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. See you next time.